At long last, we have our old friend Nathan Rennie of uh, Concordia, Minneapolis, St. Paul, on the program today to talk about uh, Marxism, postmodernism, and how that relates to the church. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to him in layman's terms. If you're interested in fighting against Trump, if you're interested in seeing real social change, that means you do have to change those people's minds and you have to change the way that they live and practice and the way that they relate to each other and to people who they think may not be like them. And that means advancing uh, a message which is not just pandering to their economic interests, but is also educating them on the role that racism has played in this country and the need for them to take up the struggle against white chauvinism and racism as their own struggle as well. Go down in It turns out she has a pretty interesting and troubling biography that helps explain why she would make seemingly pretty odd choices, but revealing about about this moment we're living in, especially in sort of liberal milieus. Yeah, and I think the thing is that the contemporary language of identity made it very hard for people to explain why they had such a strong, affective reaction to Rachel Dolezal. There was this utter disgust with her, um, but... um, a lot of difficulty explaining precisely why when you know we at, at this because at the same time we talk about the fungibility of identity and things like that um, on what basis are we saying that this was wrong I think one could make an argument but the the problem is that our existing political language doesn't make that possible and I think it was specifically the failure of identitarian language there that left identitarian liberals with only outrage at as a response to conservatives who tried to use the Dolezal episode to basically attack trans people and say, right. oh, well, if this is a problem, then why can people uh, be trans? Obviously, that's outrageous that they're, you know, exploiting this Internet controversy to attack trans people, but I think people, a lot of, because of the identitarian framework, people were ill-equipped to respond to the right, the homophobic right on that. Okay. So that, that's pretty interesting to me that we might, obviously we're, we're the right quote unquote that they're referring to. I think Nathan, listen to this. These guys don't go on to explain where you draw that line. So why can't a, a white woman like Rachel Dolezal uh, claim a black identity. They really don't address that. I mean, do you have any idea where that line might be drawn for us? They they didn't draw it for us here. Um, what's what's kind of your thoughts on that? No, I mean, I really, I'm really kind of at a loss as to why that, why they think that this was a bad argument on the part of more conservative people. Uh, something that you know, we pointed out and as they said, like took advantage of and everything else. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is the whole situation uh, with, is it Dolezal? Is that her last name? Yeah. Rachel Dolezal? Yep. I mean, that was just the perfect uh, situation to point out that the craziness of where the identitarian stuff leads us. And I know that these guys are kind of trying to speak against identity politics or they're trying to reframe it 
and they're trying to make it more reasonable and they want to say that uh, the conflicts in the left that are happening right now, uh, we can overcome these and there's no reason why all these things can't go together. But the fact of the matter is, is that they're basically denying the fact that there's essences in this world, that there are things that God has created a certain way. And it's not just Christians, of course, who have acknowledged this, or even just religious people throughout the ages, but uh, this is something that the classical philosophers uh, noticed as well. Uh, They talked about how things had essences, they had substances, Um, things were a certain way in the world. And so for us to point this out, that basically all throughout human history, it has been acknowledged that there are men and there are women. Um, The fact that Rachel Dolezal would say something like that seems far less radical to me than the whole trans uh, transgender movement and everything else. And I understand that that is a complicated issue in a lot of ways because those people are dealing with deep psychological, uh, possibly even some sort of physiological thing that's going on there right. uh, that is causing uh, them a lot of uh, angst and everything else. Mm-hmm. But... Of course, we so as Christians, we do need to respond compassionately to that, but we simply can't give in to this idea uh, that someone who is externally male, for example, is is female and everything else. I mean, that is completely going against the gift that God has given us in our bodies. And, you know, we are men, we are women. Uh, that is an essential thing. Right. And it's not something that can be changed by our language or anything else, which is basically what, basically what liberalism today, um, well, in the more socialist factions, the Marxists, the postmodernists, the mm-hmm. cultural Marxism, I mean, they're going in that direction of Hegel, and Hegel, right. of course, once again, I, we brought this up before, he doesn't doesn't have consistent a room for consistent substances or essences that right. will persist over time. Yeah. Everything yeah. everything can change with right. Hegel. And right. so that's exactly where where they're going and they're using it to counter Christianity and to counter all of the fruits that Christianity has brought uh, to people who've experienced it. Right. Right. That's yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go was with with Hegel and, and particularly probably more germane to to my uh, if I can use this term, experience, uh, you know, out at Claremont with process theology is that is that no, you, you know, the, I mean, you're spot on to point out that um, they're denying that the essences that classical theology give, gives us and opting for this process, you know, uh, you know, this dialectic, this, you know, thesis and uh, antithesis and then synthesis, um, which, you know, which for Hegel and then later Whitehead, is is really where the where the quote truth is it's everything is in process and so for somebody for a white girl like Rachel Dolezal a white woman to come along and say i identify as a as a black woman uh is is part of this this process uh, you know a couple of things here uh in, in defense of of our uh 
podcast hosts here were critiquing. I, I think the church has has made some mistakes, to be sure, in, in handling these situations, you know, and just responding to people that have um, difficulties in this area uh, with disgust and, and rejecting them and not reaching out to them with compassion and grace. I think we've made some mistakes in that area, and I think we continue to make some mistakes in that area. How, however, we still need to respond to this um, in in a tougher love than is being responded to by your Hegelian, really postmodernist types, and, and that's that's really the idea. And this 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 whole thing kind of enters into the milieu of of postmodernism because um, you know you you've got this deconstruction of culture going on. You've you've got the 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 inversion or the subversion of the binaries of man and woman. First of all, you've got feminism coming along trying to subvert the quote patriarchal uh, hierarchy, and, and then not only subvert it but to dissolve the meanings of of uh, of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a, a person of a certain race, and these sorts of things in order to uh, forward this agenda of cultural. Uh, egalitarianism, and that and and that's essentially what what's going on here is, uh, and these guys are frustrated, uh, and they're going to go on to say, and, and again in their defense, that identity politics has caused certain individuals like Rachel Dolezal to seek this victimhood uh, space, uh, this victimhood positioning, in order that uh, they can have power as individuals. And what that's doing is disrupting the the broader movement, you know, of, of this cultural Marxism where, that's supposed to be this mass movement, and instead it's turned into this individual movement where oh, uh, all I have to do is identify as a black woman, and then I can achieve the power status of victimhood, and therefore I can have agency, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, when really the idea, uh, what they're saying our friends here on the podcast, what they're saying is that, that that's not the point of identity politics at all. <laughs> the point is of identity politics is for us all to bind together and kind of create this mass movement that will overcome the bourgeoisie, right? Um, and, yes. and they're, and they're going to kind of go on to, to, to say this. And that's where the Marxism enters into this. And, and if you go and listen to this entire podcast, and again, this is the dig, uh, mistaking identity politics is the name of this episode. Um, and if you go and listen to this, I mean, these guys flat out say they're Marxists, and that's what they're shooting for. But they're shooting for a cultural Marxism, and and they're and in order to do that, as you say, they have to eject this essentialism that's been brought forth by classical, not only classical philosophy but biblical Christianity, that 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 God makes things a certain way. And that 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 is what is to be celebrated, and that is the healthy way forward. And they're trying to subvert that ultimately, right? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, critique critique my comments on that, maybe. No, I think you nailed it. I mean, they're at war with the creator, basically, and that's kind of what has been in the mix with Marxism right from the beginning. I found this podcast so interesting because. I'd heard some people saying that, oh, well, you know, you can't really so closely connect postmodernism and Marxism. 
you know, like guys like Derrida and Foucault. You, you can't really connect all that stuff so closely. But really what this podcast shows is that, yeah, you can, because this guy was saying that right from the beginning, Marx's whole point, he was frustrated that democratic capital or dem- democracy had not toppled all the hierarchies in the yep. world so far. And so, you know, he was looking for a way that the oppressed, that the little guy could just overturn everything. Yep. And then so he looked into economics and he found out that economics was uh, just a really core thing that he needed to focus on and that he could, with the proletariat, overthrow the bourgeoisie. And so, I mean, really, this podcast is remarkable, I think, in just for what it admits Mm-hmm. Um, it even went into some surprising things that I didn't know about Martin Luther King Jr. that yep. they were saying. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I was, uh, it was pretty amazing. And that's an interesting point about Rachel Dolezal. And I, I think you really summed it up well there, how they're frustrated with how she's doing that, like as an individual and claiming victimhood. But what I found interesting about that is that they didn't seem to see that, well, first of all, they're Rachel Dolezal, I'm sure there might be a lot of other folks who are like her as well, who might have similar thoughts about race and changing their race. And so it's not like she's just an individual. And as far as her claiming victimhood, that's exactly, they talked about how Marxism, the whole philosophy is basically based on the presupposition or the assumption that the most important thing about life is that it's just a struggle. It's a struggle against the hierarchy. Right. And so you're getting exactly what, uh, you know, Marx, maybe Marx didn't intend for, you know, things to go in that direction, but basically by trying to overturn hierarchy, overturn uh, essences and substances and the way that things are. I mean, yes, there are things in society that can change, but then there's also things that can't change. And so I found it just ironic that they were complaining about it (laughs) when the whole thing is based on uh, the oppressed, basically. Yeah, that's right. And just in plain terms, underneath all of this is when you destroy the essences of man and woman. I mean, you've you've completely. I mean, that that is the foundations of the institution of the family, and the institution of the family is the basic basic building block of any culture. Forget about Western culture. That's the basic building block of of any culture in the world. Um, and so, so to attack that is is an attack, you know, right at the at the heart. Uh, you know, particularly of of Western culture, um, and, and really an attack at at the heart of, of of any culture when you get when you get down to it. And so, if if you attack that, then uh, you know I, I I get frustrated with with uh, particularly uh, you know Republican candidates or Republican pundits who say, well, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't focus on the social issues so much. You know, we we should focus more on the economic issues. Well. I got news for you. If you don't focus on the social issues, that that's where the attack is happening. Because if if the family is dissolved, being a man is just simply a, a social construct. Being a woman is just simply a social construct, and we need to dissolve those meanings. We just need to do we just need to do away with them because they're just culturally and socially constructed. Then basically, what 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 you're doing is you're completely dissolving the foundation upon which economy is built culture is built, society is built, 
um, the, that's that's where really where the battle is joined, in my opinion. And so the idea of getting back to an essentialism of some sort, uh, I think, is critical not only for our culture but for these individuals who suffer uh, from what has been up until five minutes ago termed as a as a mental disorder and, and gender dysphoria. I think these attacks can be made crassly, uh, and I think that's perhaps what they're pointing out. But the, but as as we're going to see, they they really offer no counter uh, to that argument that hey, if you if a man can say he's a woman, why can't a white girl say she's a she's a black girl? There there's really no logical argument against that 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 I can think of, and they don't offer one. Uh, but let's 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 see what they have to say uh, going on here. It should not be so hard for us to respond to the extreme right. And that's that's a peculiar phenomenon today. We, we, sh- we should be able to engage in outright and brutal condemnations of the extreme right. Uh, but instead, um, I think one of the aspects uh, of the identity discourse is that you really need the extreme right to come in and say uh, awful things so that uh, you can take up a position of disgust. Uh, or that then you can compare whoever your current opponent, the left, oh. may be uh, to the right, and uh, and and insist that that disgust be extended to them. We should be clearer about our lines of antagonism, and we should have collective struggles against the extreme right um, that uh, I don't see happening right now. I was really hoping he would give an answer as to how you might attack an argument like that, but instead he just said, "Well, it should be easy." for us to attack. Uh, Are you seeing any easy line of attack when we respond in this way? And and of course, Nathan, you and I, uh, I'm certain from this individual, we would be considered on the, uh, uh, to be extreme, right? Well, I, I'm guessing that we would be considered extreme, right? I mean, because you and I believe that scripture is the word of God. And we believe that God has created this world with all kinds of wonderful structures in it that it's good for us to pay attention to and that we operate in certain grooves, so to speak. And there is hierarchy, and hierarchy is a wonderful thing and a blessed thing, and we should not talk about overthrowing hierarchy (laughs) in any sense, really, as much as Jesus certainly challenged those in positions of authority and held them accountable for what they did. Yeah, I can I can imagine that we are pretty extreme right to them, but I'm not sure what kinds of arguments uh, they really are hoping to produce that are going to be so easy uh, to overcome, uh, to overcome the opposition that they would face uh, from people who are against them. I I don't really know yeah. <laughs> exactly where they're going with that. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't. I, I don't either. And um, I, and the thing of it is, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. The hierarchies are, are are a blessing from God, but what but what they but I think a couple things is that I think Acton was right. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And in hierarchies, with without a Christian ethic, a, a hierarchy can run amok, and the hierarchies can be can become um, oppressive. And I think that um, that's that's what the that's what Marx missed uh, when you've got Nietzsche saying God is dead. You don't have an ethic to come in and say, okay, yes, there are these hierarchies, but we're called to you with with great responsibility. 
with the power a hierarchy might grant to you comes great responsibility to treat those who may be below you in the hierarchy as those you are serving. And, and that's what that's what Christ shows us very very clearly in Holy Scripture, in the Gospels, is that um, he who, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, he who wants to be the greatest among you must be the servant of all. Um, so in the hierarchy, uh, you know, in, in the Christian ethic, um, those at the at the quote top of the hierarchy are the greatest servants. That's why I'm I'm against women being pastors because pastors are the greatest servants, and you know it takes the greatest sacrifice for them to to sit quote atop that hierarchy. Um, it's a it's a sacrifice that that I that I wouldn't wish really on anybody, especially uh, uh, women. You know who who I want to protect and serve and. Uh, make sure they're taken care of and, and not subjected to uh, the things we men uh, have to go through. Uh, so, so you know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right, and um, yeah, I just I just don't see an, an argument against that to to say that that we should dissolve these things. Uh, these these things are, are are good and right when men um, who are captivated by the Holy Spirit and the Gospel of Christ. Um, are are atop of the uh, of these hierarchies. In fact, really great things happen when when, when that goes on. Any rate, yeah, I, I I'm at a loss as to how um you know they they would argue, you know, really essentially just really in plain terms, um how 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 can you say that you know what Rachel Dolezal is doing is wrong, um uh when. Uh, when you say trans people are w- what trans people are doing is is absolutely legitimate, I just don't see see that distinction. Uh, well, I I think I have maybe <laughs> a thought now, and it kind of goes along with what they were saying about how you need the right to respond in a way that's yeah. you know uh, kind of with disgust and everything else. And I mean, I think that's kind of what they're counting on is they're going to portray the response from us people like ourselves as basically hateful and bigoted and uncaring and everything else. And this is the the challenge for me, Matthew, of course, is that when I look at someone like Karl Marx, I think obviously his ideas are extremely wrong and they resulted in all kinds of catastrophic death in the 20th century. And I can't understand why anybody – for that reason alone, I can't understand why people think that, oh, it might work better this time or yeah. I'm going to do it better. But the fact of the matter is, is that I do struggle with, of course, in the 19th century when Marx was looking at the things that he was looking at. I think that uh, from my limited knowledge about you know what he wrote and, and my understanding, it makes sense that he would see oppression in a lot of places and that there were things that were wrong about the world and everything else. Um, And, you know, you look today at what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church and how the men, right, in this hierarchy have just abused their positions of power and have done absolutely horrific things. And we can argue and say, well, you know, it's worse in the public school system (laughs) or, or, you know, things like that. But I, I, you know, really, this is that is looking particularly bad in Rome right now. And I think that, you know, as Lutherans, of course, we point out that even in the 16th century, uh, the Lutherans pointed out with great concern 
the mandatory celibacy and, and the, the structures of Rome, uh, you know, basically saying that people, priests had to be uh, celibate and they could not be married, uh, not allowing them to do that. And of course, the whole mess up with justification is what the Reformation uh, is ultimately all about. But, I mean, you can see why, even with Christian societies, which I think have given us so much and so much to be thankful for, there's always, of course, things that you can point out. I mean, I guess, uh, depending on your experiences, you know, why you're looking for all the problems or, I mean, it's hard because I I don't want to say that, well, Marxists, you know, have great compassion for the poor (laughs) or anything like that. But on the other hand, it's like certainly there are things that they pointed out that were very true and uh, point out areas where all of us have sinned and we have caused great pain and suffering. Right. uh, Sometimes, sometimes without even knowing it to our neighbor. Yeah, no, that I, I think you're absolutely spot on there. And that's, that's where, you know, um, where I'm going to, to join hands with, you know, neo-Marxist postmoderns and say, look, yes, there are problems inherent in the Enlightenment. Um, there are problems that the church has, has um, promulgated, has fostered, but their answers is, is what you and I are going to take issue with. Yes, we, we, we both can we can all join hands and say, yes, these are problems, but what's the solution to it? Uh, is the solution to, to take everything that Western culture has ever been founded on, including Christianity and uh, classical philosophy, and wad it up and throw it down the toilet? That, to me, seems as, as not a very good idea. Uh, as as a, as an idea that 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 leads to um, ex- extreme violence um, and and just another form of of, uh, of tyranny, uh, and I think history has borne that out. Um, as you uh, alluded to, uh, every time Marxism socialism has tried, it fails in uh, in suffering and death. <laughs> I mean, there's not been a time when this has tri- been tried on a broad scale where millions of people have not been uh, subjected to torture and death. That's just the historical fact. Um, and that's, yep. you know, that's, that, that's what baffles me, baffles me about, about these guys and, and about, you know, folks I ran into, you know, say out of Claremont where, where, where they talked about Marxism and socialism in these glowing terms. And someone's like, wait, wait a second. Don't, you know, history at all. So, so, so at any rate, yeah, I, I, I bringing, bringing it back to the point that I think we identify the same problems. Um, it's just what, what are the solutions to these problems? And, uh, and, and I think both you and I would put forth, uh, that, a, that a biblical, uh, Christian understanding of, of hierarchy, of, uh, you know, even of uh, Western liberalism, which would include, you know, uh, Republican democracy and capitalism, living as Christians within that kind of structure, you know, really is the answer (laughs) and and not this, this, this wholesale wiping aside of, of the liberal, the Western liberal, when I say liberal, I mean, classically liberal uh, project. So anyway, well, let's, let's, uh, let's see a little bit more of what, what they've got uh, going on here in this little segment. Just discussing the individualist notion of injury embedded within identitarian frameworks, 
And I think the corollary to that is there's an individualist notion in terms of perpetrators of racism as well, rather than structural issues, even though people talk about structural racism, it often comes down to like bad ideas in people's heads, which to me transposes this racism that's rooted in political economy contingently into the brains or even genes of people with bad ideas. And often, ironically, it's on its more affluent liberals transposing racism, blaming for racism, poor white people who, you know, might use the N-word or something, rather than a political economic system that systematically segregates and exploits black people. And and this is a constant thing I talk about on the show, that 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 blaming of of kind of the the stereotypical redneck, the white trash, is itself racist because it's about cleansing the white mm-hmm. elite the white elite's whiteness of this white trash of the bad yeah. whites. First of all, affluent whites are extremely racist, and you know there are particular bubbles uh, in you know the Northeast and the West Coast uh, that uh, contain upper middle class and sometimes lower wealthy elite white people who uh, are part of like a um, uh, a kind of progressive culture. You know, there was uh, this was sort of summed up in the very interesting response to the book "What's the Matter with Kansas?" Uh, What's the matter with Connecticut? You know, because <laughs> actually, the thing is, rich people are extremely right wing and racist, and it, it's just the the actual weird phenomenon is that there are some wealthy states where rich people lean towards liberalism. Uh, like Connecticut and others. But in most of the country, that's not the case. In most of the country, you know, the lower your income, even among white people, the more likely you are to vote for the Democrats. And so, I mean, there are a lot of complete misconceptions about um, the way that, uh, about the politics of different demographics in the United States that underlie those kinds of prejudices about white trash. Just look at Westchester County's long-running, absolutely tenacious fight against housing integration, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. would require placing low income and thus disproportionately people of color in their communities. This is yeah. a, a, a cause for war for Westchester yeah. County, New York. Yeah. And you saw that this also in terms of the way that Trump voters are talked about. There's just this assumption that every white person in the Midwest and the South voted for Trump. It's not true. There's there. I mean, we have a huge portion of the population, first of all, in the United States does not vote, okay, from the start. There are plenty of white people, the majority of white people in this country did not vote for Trump. It just means that that's just what the numbers mean. Uh, but even, I mean, the, the way that this group is discussed, it's like um, they are so morally responsible for something bad that happened that um, all we can do is morally condemn them. Uh Anyone who suggests, like Bernie Sanders or whatever, that we should go out and speak to them and speak to their actual existing concerns is uh, apologizing for and rationalizing their racism. Well, this is, uh, I mean... Which is a classic conservative argument when it comes to other issues when 
we on the anti-imperialist left, the anti-war left, say, hey, maybe the U.S. history of imperialism in the Middle East might have something to do with why two mm-hmm. planes got flown in <laughs> to the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon. Um, the the standard conservative response is that you're excusing terrorism. Right. And But of course, saying this thing about Trump voters is, you know, it's going to get you a lot of likes and RTs. And uh, it's going to be very popular <laughs> when you say it on MSNBC. But the thing is, when you actually follow through on that to think about what are the political consequences and what's the actual political program that follows, it exposes a very serious error in thinking, which is uh, unless you plan to physically eradicate that part of the population, okay, which is, which I mean, not only would that be uh, like a morally bad Or thing, deprive them of their franchise somehow. Exactly. somehow. Yeah, so we're, I mean, th- those are pretty, um, th- th- they're, they're outside the pale. I mean, those are like fascist behaviors. So unless you're proposing those, you have to think about if you're, if you're actually interested in opposing racism, if you're interested in fighting against Trump, if you're interested in seeing real social change, that means you do have to change those people's minds and you have to change the way that they live and practice and the way that they relate to each other and to people who they think may not be like them. And that means advancing uh, a message which is not just pandering to their economic interests but is also educating them on the role that racism has played in this country and the need for them to take up the struggle against white chauvinism and racism as their own struggle as well. And, and, and the need for them to uh, form solidarities with people of color and accept the leadership of people of color in, in uh, movements that are about uh, defending immigrants, in movements that are fighting against police violence, and, and in movements that are, are about um, uh, unionizing workplaces that don't have, have that kind of protection. All of these things have to be done, and, and the, the people in the Midwest, in the South, uh, they have to be reached with that message. There's no other way. And you get a lot of people, again, this is like a typical online thing, saying, well, it's not my job to educate you about white supremacy. Well, uh, if you're an activist, that is your job. pretty much your job, yeah, because pretty much um, – that's, that's like precisely your education. job description. Yeah. Political education is exactly what you need to be doing if you want to have social change. And this is what, you know, you can go on YouTube and look at an amazing uh, little kind of exchange Fred Hampton has about political education. It was a fundamental term for the Black Panthers. They thought that the Breakfast for Children program was first and foremost a political education program. Political education is fundamental. That's uh, fairly fascinating approach to things that really, you know, your your uh, backwoods, hayseed, you know, typical racist, um, they just need to be politically educated and then they'll join the cause of the proletariat against the, the, the bourgeoisie. I've got some thoughts on this, Nathan. What's, what's, what's your thoughts on, um, uh, on that project? Um. <laughs> oh my goodness. There, yeah, well, that was quite the clip you played there, man. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> with all that, con- 
with all that content, evidently every like rich white person in this country is just a radical right wing conservative. I didn't realize that. Uh, I didn't but, either. I mean, yeah. it's good to know, I guess. <laughs> so, I mean, that Racist. Might, they might have a little bit of a hard time explaining. I understand they're Marxists, and so basically anybody to the right of Karl Marx is going to be <clears throat> a complete heretic. <laughs> right. But. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that there are a lot of people who are working towards the goals that Karl Marx had. I mean, you know, Karl Marx wanted everyone to be equal, or at least, you know, he really talked about uh, the importance of, of equality of outcome, as you have often talked about. Yep. He talked about the importance of destroying the nuclear family, uh, basically eliminating the nuclear family. Yep. Um, and kind of eliminating those ties and everything else. And there are a lot of people in society who, uh, particularly people in government and business, who have a lot of power, and especially in the big businesses, I don't really see the big businesses going in the direction of social conservatism at all. Right. And I understand that for them, the big deal is the economics and how these guys are just not Marxist, basically. Yeah. And they're moving too slow and, you know, uh, they're basically it, it's the whole thing that they're moving too slow. But I mean, uh, and, and yeah, and then probably a lot of the people who are on the left, even they don't want they don't necessarily want Marxism. But I do think that more and more what you see in this country is the left is going more and more towards socialism, which certainly does eventually get you to communism and Marxism and everything else. So, and then I found it interesting. I mean, you know, when they're talking about, uh, of course we can't eliminate the population, so we'll have to educate them, but right. well, we know what happened in the communist countries as yep. well, right? Yeah. And if you're not, so that's gonna... all a rather horrifying, um, on a number of levels. And I, I would just say this to close and then I'll let you say sure. something too, yeah. but there is something, there is something, about the Marxist vision of the world that kind of approximates what we see in the kingdom of heaven, right? Because sure. we know that God values deeply each and every individual. He cares for the oppressed. He cares for the widow and the orphan. Sure. And that, you know, when he comes back again and when we have his new creation, all things are going to be set to right. There's not going to be racism. I don't even know if there's going to be in-group preference, <laughs> which is something <laughs> that... You know, everybody, it, it's so frustrating because, like, I often think about this. Like, where is the line between, you know, you're so willing to talk about how in-group preference is just a natural thing. And I think that kind of matches up with, you know, if you think about your own family, it's like, of course you have in-group preference sure. for your family and yeah. probably for your extended family. But for them, it's like when they're talking about racism and particularly white racism, all of that just gets kind of blurred together and it's all just put together in this big mush yep. and you know they want this vision of heaven which of course and i think there is hierarchy in heaven but there also yeah. is a real leveling in the sense that there will be care and concern and the love of god for absolutely you know every every human being um in, in that kingdom of heaven so yep. that's what they want but they're not going to get it right through their methods Yep. And you would think that the 20th century would have taught us something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and the thing of it is, um, you know, I, I've heard, I, I've read a lot of commentators who 
say that in the kingdom of heaven, there will be hierarchy, but instead of being jealous of someone else's position, we'll be happy for them to have yes. what, what the Lord has given them, you know? Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's one thing that Orwell kind of pointed out in the, in the road to Wigan Pier is, you know, it, these these people who are who are so concerned for the seem to be so concerned for the oppressed what ends up what it, what in reality ends up being is that they're actually jealous of those who have um and they want their position um and you know and this goes back to the fall when god curses eve to say to say that her desire would be for her husband and and that's understood by most commentators to mean that what eve would would really desire is not her husband in, in in a pure sense, but he would she would desire his position, see, and I think and I think that's really at the heart uh, of this whole uh, neo Marxist postmodern project is that is that you know they're not so much concerned for the oppressed and the poor, but they but they are it, it's more of a jealousy for what uh, for the positions of those uh, in power and what they have, and I and I think that's uh, kind of you know really uh, coming. At, to be pretty clear here, uh, you know, when I was at Claremont, that that was the thing. Was you know, one of our big things, especially being in Southern California, was was helping illegal immigrants. And you know, did we want to help the illegal immigrants? Well, yeah, sure. But really, uh, at the at the foundation of our agenda was we wanted to help illegal immigrants get on the government dole in order to strain the system. See, we we really weren't so much interested in helping the immigrants, or as we called them, undocumented. Um, you know, immigrants, aliens. Um, yeah, we were concerned to that with that to some extent, but our but our bigger agenda was to was to put them in a position to put strain on the current system. That was really our bigger agenda, and they really these guys go on to talk about that there. Uh, but what's alarming about this this rather lengthy clip that I played well, was that the edu- you know the education we need to politically educate people. Nathan, you and I need to be politically educated. Uh, and th- it is horrifying to envision what political education by uh, at the hands of these two individuals might look like for someone like you and I. Um, you live yeah. in Minnesota. I live in Indiana. We're Midwesterners. I'm, you know, I grew up in the South. Um, you're going to come politically educate me, okay? Wh- how, how's that going to go down? Um, when it, when if I resist? Um, what kind of uh, you know? What if I protest? When if I say you know I, I I I'm not buying into your program here, uh, what then? Uh, you know they you know and that's and that's the thing that that frustrated me when I was at Claremont is these people made this made these sort of things sound so simplistic when it's really not and and the thing of it is um, is that there are people in the deep south who are genuinely racist. I mean I was just down in Texas this past weekend and I and I ran into somebody and I don't think he meant evil by saying this but we were talking about slavery and he he made a comment about how you know africans were better off in in america as slaves than they were in africa and i just you know that was a disgusting and appalling statement for for somebody to make but he was an older gentleman in the southern baptist church and so you're you're going to tell me you're going to re-educate that individual um what happens when your efforts fail uh, are you going to put him to the waterboard to, you know, this, this whole re-education thing smacks of 1984 to me. Yeah, this, mm. this is, uh, this is pretty, pretty insane stuff. And, uh, and, and I listened to Pastor Cooper's comments on, on postmodernism and the, and the language we're using, 
Um, and, and I think he's spot on to say that, you know, we in the church need to be very cognizant of the, of the language we're using when, when we're trying to approach these issues. Uh, because when you start using the language like this, I mean, you, you uh, maybe even without knowing, are buying into this, this kind of program. And I would call it a program almost. Uh, you know, hmm. uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's something we need to be very, very, very careful about, you know, when, when it comes to approaching these issues and we need to approach it from, from a biblical standpoint. Okay. So anyway, there's my sermon <laughs> for this time. Um, so we, let, let's see if we can get a little bit more of this in here. What do you think? Let's, let's give it a, give it a shot and see where, where else they're going to go with this. Talk Sounds a good. little about one key term in the individualist lexicon, which is white privilege. It's it's used all the time, and I think in my case, it was Tim Wise, God help me, who first introduced me to it long ago in my innocent, naive youth. What is this invisible knapsack of privilege that an in, a white individual or an individual with XYZ characteristics carries around with them, according to this notion of white privilege, and how does that notion differ from what people like W.E.B. Du Bois have argued in terms of the wages of whiteness? How do these two – these seem like the two extremely distinct ways to to try to get at something similar. Using the metaphor of a knapsack, it's to me a very misleading or confusing way to talk about what white privilege is because white privilege, just like – just the way that we talk about race – if you want to talk about race as like an aspect of people's bodies or something like that, you're just going totally down the wrong track. You have to. Okay, that that is really important. Um, that that I want to point out when when he's when he says you're talking about people's bodies. When people start talking about race, you got to be very discerning because when people start talking about white, quote unquote white, what they're talking about is a Western liberal democracy um, undergirded by capitalism. That's quote unquote white. Uh, it has nothing to do with your skin color. So, a- according to these guys, as a truck driver myself, technically I'm black. I I I'm being robbed of my labor in order to uh in order to line the pockets of the bourgeoisie. That that would be their assessment of my chosen career. So therefore, I, I'm I'm not white by virtue of my skin color. I'm white. I, I I'm actually black by virtue of my position in society. Does that make sense? So so they've really they they um, you have to understand that when people talk about race and class in, in these ways, what they're doing is they're 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 conflating um, ideology in the sense that if if you're in the working class, you're black. If you're in the bourgeoisie, if you're the proletariat, you're black. If you're uh, in the ruling class, you, uh, you're white. That's that's the distinction that needs to be made. So a lot of times when people hear um, folks like I, I sent you that um, that firing line from from I think it was seventy one or seventy two with um, with Buckley and uh, Eldridge. If you didn't listen to that, you should listen to that. It's really fascinating. Uh, but but the whole idea of whiteness is not so much skin color as it is your position in the socioeconomic system, right? So you, you've got to kind of decipher what people are talking about when they're talking about 
white and black. Okay, so that's something I learned at Claremont. Just thought I'd share it. <laughs> let me let me see. <laughs> let me uh, let me play the rest of the clip here. <laughs> Talk about All race right. as relations between people who get categorized in a particular way because of a particular historical process. It's not just something that's in people. Uh, and I mean, we that I mean that's false on the scientific level and it's false on the historical level. So talking about white privilege as though it's um, it's like, I mean, they talk about a knapsack. I think about it like some kind of weird video game that you have an inventory of different tools that you use, the white person. And you go around, you, you encounter some difficult situation. You think, oh, yeah, well, here's this tool that I'll use, like this, like, magic amulet I'll use for, you know, to, 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 get, it, to get into college. <laughs> so um, that's uh, misleading because when we talk about the – the emergence of privileges for white people. We are talking specifically about the way that um, populations that are not initially included in the category of the white race, like the Irish and all the other immigrant populations from Europe, which were part of racial hierarchies in Europe when they come to the United States, how do they get invited to join the club of whiteness? And this is the language of Nolik Nadia from his uh, How the Irish Became White. And the extension of particular privileges to white people, uh, to, to, to people who opt to join the club of whiteness, that's the mechanism by which they are um, uh, taken away from a situation in which they might recognize their solidarity with black workers and other workers of color. Uh, and that's fundamentally what white privilege does. And Noel Ignatiev, along with Theodore Allen, uh, they sort of uh, advanced the concept first in the uh, 1960s, uh, and they called it white skin privilege. But the point of their argument was to say white skin privileges, white skin privilege is bad for white people. Obviously, yes, it's good for them in the short term that they uh, have access to partic particular things, they are safe in certain places and so on, but it's a poison bait because they are still subjected to exploitation, poverty, deprivation, and so on. And the fact of racial division is what is preventing them from joining with the people who are more exploited and more uh, oppressed than them, but who need to band together in order to attack their common enemy, which is the bosses. And, um, you know, that's just like not something that's even considered today when you talk about white privilege, that white privilege might actually ultimately be a bad thing for white people. Uh, and I, This was a core argument even before that for Du Bois, right? I mean, the wages of whiteness are not to highlight how awesome being white is. It's to highlight the fact that the wages of whiteness are these, you know, these various symbolic or maybe, you know, meagerly economic uh advantages accorded to white people, just as you just said, precisely to create a division within the working class that maintains the overall status quo. This isn't the insight of Du Bois, uh, more, I, th I believe, like more than 100 years ago? Uh, it was in 19... Okay, so, so right. Um, white, white privilege is something that is actually leveraged against you and I, Nathan, so that we won't join... 
with our uh, oppressed black brothers and sisters in creating this mass movement in order to overthrow uh, the the bourgeoisie. Um, yeah, give me your give me your thoughts there. <laughs> Oh man! Well, Matthew, you're the one who went to Claremont and was actually enmeshed enmeshed in all of this stuff. Enmeshed. I, I tell you, I sent you this podcast because I found it all extremely enlightening, and yep. I thought these guys were very forthcoming about just where they were going and how you know they're they're very unveiled Marxism. Yep. Um, and really their efforts to try to combine classical Marxism and a, a correct understanding of Marx along with uh, in pointing out how it meshed perfectly basically with uh, the cultural Marxism that arose in the 1920s and the 1930s. And basically, you know, there's been some there's some hiccups right now because you've got Marxists, who, uh, socialists, Marxists, people who like Bernie Sanders, yep. kind of butting heads a little bit with some of these identity politics people. But you know, we're gonna we're gonna have the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. We're gonna make it all work. Right. We're gonna make it all work somehow. Yep. And yeah, I don't really know what to say to all of this because, quite honestly, uh, I do need to study this more. And I think yeah. probably Christians as a whole need to study this more and be familiar with these kinds of arguments and then also of course look and see where arguments like this have led um, yep. and take that really really seriously because these guys are completely serious um, about what they're talking about and they're yeah. obviously sorry I've got things coming up on my computer here they're obviously very very convicted um, you know they have a very strong convictions that they are right um, at the same time, you know, they're doing what people on the left, uh, Marxists, have always done. And they're also, you know, they're taking advantage some in some sense. I mean, what they're talking about in this podcast is that a really, really, you know, they're getting pretty complex. They're talking yeah. to Marxists and people who are on the left who are intellectuals. Yep. But the fact of the matter is, is that they're going to have to be talking with you know, common people and everything else, people who don't think about all this stuff, you know, 24-7. Right. And they're going to use words really, really in a way where they're changing the meanings of the words, where they're, like you say, conflating things. Yeah. And it's going to get, I mean, it's just really confusing. But basically what it ultimately comes down to is they're dead set against capitalism. And I can yeah. say, look, there's all kinds of problems with capitalism, sure. but like Churchill said of democracy, I think capitalism is like the worst form of economic, you know, the worst way to run an economy, except for all the other ones. Right. Anyway, right. what do you think? Well, yeah, no, I think you're 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 spot on, and uh, um, yeah, it's it, 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 yeah, it's a situation where um, Christians need to. I mean, and, and I think this is really the point we're driving at is that Christians need to realize this is a fundamental attack on the faith. That the that there is no place for faith in this um, is is really I think what ultimately we need to drive at because if you insert faith in this, then all of a sudden, boom, you've got the hierarchies back in place. Boom, you've got you know uh, the the notion of individual property rights, etc., etc., etc. Um, and, and faith just completely disrupts us. And I, I think Marx was wise. 
uh, to recognize, <laughs> wise in, in an evil sense, uh, that, uh, that faith could not participate uh, in, in this sort of thing uh, and survive. Uh, but but um, but I think that's why I, I'm so glad you sent this to me because it's incumbent on us as people of faith to say that wait a second folks no this this is not the answer um, faith is the answer uh, and and a re- I mean this you know we really desperately need a return to faith in 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 this day and time um, and 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 we need to re- we need to yes recognize. You know what the postmodern neo-Marxists are pointing out, and say that these are problems, but we need to answer those with with answers from Holy Scripture, from from the revealed Word of God, um, that uh, you know, you know that, that will provide us a way for, forward. I did, I just again, I've I, I've been around the block, you know, I've tried everything, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and I just don't see any way forward except through uh, through genuine faith. And I think that's what we're driving at. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. It brings salvation to those who believe. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Tell me I'm a sinner and Christ died for me. I don't want to know about what you did last week on your summer vacation. What you saw, where you went, or how much it cost. Instead, won't you tell me all the words that give me salvation? How he lived and how he died for me on the cross. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Give me the good news of God's only son. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Give me the 